there are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, Morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, What the hell is water? I'm Don Hall and this is the Peculiar Journeys Podcast. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast designed to see the water that surrounds us. Twenty fifteen was a great year. Now, while I had yet another new boss at WBEZ, Vanessa Harris had left for greener pastures. We were still in full stride. We produced 137 events that included Ira Glass's Broadway dance show, which was actually a truly giant pain in the ass and the experience that soured me on Ira pretty much permanently and led me to declare that Ira Glass is a douche to more than a few. We had Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me at Millennium Park. It was a, a huge show. It was the biggest audience they had ever had there, and that this may be foreshadowing anyone. Uh, 17,000 people. And we had an epic winter block party. We had all this stuff going on. On top of that, I sent Dana to Paris for a month for our first wedding anniversary. I joined her for the last week. The idea being that she was a, I mean, she is a poet and had never been to Paris. And that being in Paris by herself just as a poet would probably have some benefit and would be a good uh, anniversary present. We did decide at the time that Maybe three weeks was too long. Um, but I did join her for the last week, and we did the anniversary stuff. We had uh, J.W. Basillo and I had created Lit Mash, and we had Lit Mash, and it had its run at the Haymarket Pub and Brewery. More foreshadowing. Um, I was riding high hosting the Moth and the Moth Grand Slams. I took Dana skydiving, and along with Tyler for our arts podcast, I got to meet Chuck Polinick, Henry Rollins, Kate Mulgrew, who hit on me, Dan Savage, and Stephen Young of The Walking Dead. Yeah, I got to say, meeting Chuck Polinick was huge for me. It was a big deal. I mean, I've been a fan of Fight Club ever since I first read it, and the David Fincher film is among my top five favorite films of all time. So when I secured an interview for Tyler and I for General Emission to meet him at a hotel in Hoffman Estates where he and Irvine Welsh were doing a stereotypical Polinick book reading in sort of like one of those meeting rooms, the big ballrooms in one of those crappy hotels... It was kind of a dream come true. I rarely get starstruck by almost anyone. I mean, outside of Michael Moore in 2008 at Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and Maynard Ferguson three separate times, famous people really don't phase me much. Whenever I consider fame or notoriety, I'm reminded of both Dick York and Richard Boehmer. You may not know who either of these people are. So Dick York was the original Darren Stevens on Bewitched in 1964. Okay, he was top of his game. He was a noted film star. He'd been, uh, just had just gotten off his starring role in uh, Inherit the Wind. If you don't know who he is, you, you, if you see his face, you might recognize him. You might be too young to even know who he was. But at the time, his back gave out, and he was replaced by Dick Sargent. And Dick Sargent became... Darren Stevens. Um, Dick York died relatively unknown in 1992, but he used his then nominal fame to help the homeless and worked as a tenement landlord in Michigan. Richard Boehmer, 
on the other hand, was he was the guy that played Tony in the 1960 film West Side Story. He was, you know, tonight, tonight. He didn't, he played the part, but because the singing voice was dubbed in, he never really uh, catapulted beyond that moment of fame. He was the face for another voice. And then years, years, decades later, Andy Kaufman used his lifelong burden of near fame and created a grotesque and hysterical performance piece in L.A. that had him singing on stage. And he did not, as you understand, had did not have a great singing voice. So fame is just another form of popularity, and popularity is best seen as a 40-year-old man still wearing his high school letter jacket, drunk at a football game, and, and you know reliving the glory days when he was a young man and was known. It's kind of sad. It's kind of pathetic, and that letter jacket probably smells bad. Well, I was 25, and this is an example. In, in the audience at Second City watching Chris Farley perform in the cast, Lorne Michaels was also in the audience. There was a big uh, SNL coming to Second City thing. And so before the improv set, I head to the bathroom to pee. Lo and behold, standing and pissing in the urinal next to me was Lorne Michaels. Now, I, I don't know why. Honestly, I really don't. It wasn't planned, but my eyes just wandered down to check out his pud. I don't know why. He caught me sneaking a glance. We made eye contact, and I had no idea what else to say. I didn't know what to say. I was caught looking at the man's dick, and my response was, nice dick. That's all I had. You know, he said thanks, and then he zipped up, and I pretended to continue peeing for like five minutes while he washed his hands and left because I just didn't, that was just awkward. Um, I mean, I imagine it would be awkward if it wasn't Lorne Michaels, but it's probably funnier that it was. A few years later, I was in the audience for opening night of Looking Glass Theater's SM. And the, the thing is, the set was designed so that the audience was on scaffolding, surrounding the stage and looking down on the action. Before it started, I noticed that everyone on the far side of the audience was looking at me. I mean, like, look, pointing at me, talking about me, and I was like, what the fuck's going on? And so after a beat, I looked over to my right and realized that David Schwimmer happened to be sitting two seats over. He saw me look at him. And I, you know, we had that moment where it's like, oh, okay, now I get it. And I just looked at him and he looked at me and I said, ah, okay, I thought all those people were looking at me and they're looking at you. And he sniffed at me. I mean, seriously, he sniffed at me. And he sniffed at me. Seriously. Sort of a dismissive, who are you, kind of sniff. Without thinking, I bark, hey, you're a fucking friend of mine. He ended up moving to another seat. So, it, 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 as I'm saying, it's odd for me to be struck dumb by somebody famous. The fame thing doesn't. In fact, it's genuinely rare for me to be speechless in any context. So when in high school, my mother took me to see my trumpet-playing idol, Maynard Ferguson. I mean, I really couldn't wait to say hello. I'd been playing my horn since I was six years old, and Ferguson and his band had been the perpetual soundtrack of my youth. The cassette tapes of Conquistador and Uncle Joe Shannon, yes, that Joe Shannon, were worn and tattered. Mom took me up to him after the concert, and he smiled a smile of a very gracious man ready to make nice to a fan. I opened my mouth, and nothing. My eyes grew big, my mouth dried up, and I just stared at him. And he waited. My mom waited. I, I mean, I smiled the biggest shit-eating grin in the repertoire and just sort of drooled. Mom gently led me away. I swore. I swore if I ever saw him in person again, I would talk to my hero. 
Well, two years later, I'm in college, I'm at another Ferguson concert, and I'm ready this time. I managed to get a backstage pass, and I have a billion questions that I cannot wait to officially meet Maynard Ferguson. After the set, I go backstage, I head to the green room, the club manager introduces me, this is Don, he is a major fan of you guys. They say hi, and then Ferguson comes out of the bathroom, he smiles and says, hi, did you like the show? And again, I fucking seize up. I grin like a fucking moron. I practically swoon for a beat. He and I look at each other, and then he laughs and leaves. Defeated a second time. Well, two more years pass. So now I'm out of college. I've played my horn on tours that went to the South Pacific, the Middle East, all over Texas, uh, a national tour of the Southwest United States, as well as New Mexico. And so I'm a badass. I'm a playing, I'm a, I'm a young trumpet god. I'm in it, man. And so I'm in this club in Austin, Texas, listening to some jazz, and I look over, and standing at the bar is none other than fucking Maynard Ferguson. And he's just there listening to music. So I finally have my chance to talk straight with my lifelong hero, and I approach him, and he, re- he does. He actually recognizes me inst- instantly, and I smile. And he says, you're not going to say anything this time, are you? And I opened my mouth, kind of giggled a stupid giggle and say, no, huh? just an asshole. I was so stupid. I was so smitten. Well, Ferguson passed on in 2006. My, so my chance to actually speak to him, well, it's passed on as well. Since then, the only person to render me truly speeches, speechless, well, I married her. So when we met Chuck Polinick in that hotel room and we sat across from him and I got to ask him questions about Fight Club and the sequel and the graphic novel form and Lullaby and Survivor and so many others, I wasn't stricken dumb. I was thrilled. In fact, as I recall it, he was pretty hot for Dana. He was very taken with my wife and she was pretty taken with him. So that was kind of an awkward but funny kind of thing where, you know, Tyler and I got in there, they had cheese, so I ate some of the cheese, which was Chuck's cheese. I ate Chuck's cheese. And uh, and there was a little couch. We set up the audio equipment, and he came in and sat down, and immediately, it was like Tyler and I weren't there, he saw Dana, and they started to talk. And so then it was like, all right, let's do the interview. And we sat down in the interview. And then afterwards, Chuck wanted to get photos with Dana. I mean, he, he suggested, as I recall it, he suggested the photos. And Dana was more than happy to oblige. And we got that. So it was, it was, it was just really fun. So later, after the interview, we got to go to the book signing. And it was, we were a book reading. And we were witness the most extremely cool and fun book reading event I've ever been to. I mean, he, he threw, like, because I mean, the dude's got, like, boom, big fucking bicep arms. And he would just, like, hurl whole sacks of candy and candy all over the audience at certain points. He'd read a little bit, and then he would give away books. And, I mean, and it was very, very active. For a book reading, very active. And then Irvine Welsh, who I got to meet that night, was also really, really, really cool. Um so it was a great year. As I approached my 50s in the midst of this grand year, I spent a lot of time, as I am wont to do, reflecting on my good fortune. I'm in a good time. I'm boom times. Things are going well. And I thought a lot about the choices I'd made leading up to it, both good and bad, because that's the part of us that wants to control things is you examine what you did, how you did it, and how can you replicate that because success tastes good and you want to do it. 
I mean, the, the choice to take a part-time $10 an hour job for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me turned into a 10-year career. You know, I mean, and it very, and very rewarding. I mean, despite how it ended, it was a very rewarding 10 years. The choice to marry a third time on the third date was a monumental choice, but actually was one of the best choices I could have ever made and is paying off in space. Wonderful. So on the flip side... And, of course, in hindsight, trusting both Tyler and Lydia Locio, known by her stage name, Lily B, turned out to be really big mistakes. You know, another huge mistake, again, looking into that rearview mirror, was assuming that WBEZ, NPR, Moth thing, that those were permanent gigs. And then not taking an opportunity to network the way I would have if I would seen the end of them coming. So I made, you know, I certainly made mistakes. Um, ultimately, though, as the year unfolded, I just got hit over and over by the idea of choice. You know, that the only, the only thing we do not get to choose is how we're born. Everything else is simply the result of choices we make along the way. The first choice we really make in life is to either be a victim or not. I mean, humans are creatures of conquest and competition and expansion. We, we want what we want, and we will justify all manner of bullshit to get what we want. Bullies don't just spring forth from the head of Zeus fully formed and ready to categorize, beat down, and subjugate. Bullies learn how to bully from us, from society. So the choice isn't to be a bully or not. The choice in those earliest of cognitive days is whether to be a victim or not. Now, some choose not to be a victim and then instead join the path of the bully. Choice one is a positive choice, followed by choice two being a shitty choice. Every breath. So, some choose to be a victim and in that stance use that status to elevate themselves to a place where they can then choose to be a bully. Two bad choices, perhaps sort of brilliance turning weakness into strength and all that, but it still plays along with a set of rules one chose to play. It's only dog eat dog if we choose to participate in that paradigm choice. One of the true deleterious effects of choosing victimhood is that it begets an entire series of sort of choose your own adventure choices that begin to calcify who you are in the world. Anger, bitterness, outrage, and a sense that someone owes you something more, something better, grows out of the choice to accept victim status. So when I read, every breath is a choice, every minute is a choice. To be or not to be, every time you don't throw yourself down the stairs, that's a choice. Every time you don't crash your car, you re-enlist. I read that in Polinick's Survivor, which is a book about the only member of a suicide cult who refuses to commit suicide, and I kind of understood what the universe was trying to teach me, if you, know, you believe in that kind of bullshit. To fight back is a choice. To steal office supplies is a choice. To become and stay addicted are choices. To commit suicide is a choice. To eat too much is a choice. To have sex in an alley is a choice. To call in sick is a choice. To show up is a choice. To stare at her tits underneath her sweater is a choice. To accept an apology is a choice. To care what others think of you is a choice. Every breath is a choice. The tattoo artist Michael Palmer added wings to that phrase, which, given that the man in the story ends up being a pilot relating his tale to the black box of a plane he's hijacked, kind of, you know, it's kind of prescient. 
And it was the last of the birthday tattoos with messages for me to remember. I just turned 50 years old, half a century. It was 2016. I decided that nine tattoos was all I needed. I missed a lot of tattoos. And the following year, I didn't get one on my birthday, despite the fact that 2016 became an almost polar opposite year of 2015. And the year when many of my choices resulted in my losing gigs, uh, leaving jobs, and kind of starting the process of reinvention one more time in a life almost devoted to reinvention. All right, next week we close out the tales of WNEP Theater of the 90s with two groundbreaking closers through the decade, and then a week later, my final tattoo that seems to be both a flare signaling new directions, and maybe the fools fucking think I, it's just the best ink I think I've got. So thanks for listening. Now, you know, go review this fucking thing. I mean, seriously, Andrews Plored, Don Smith, Rebar, give me some stars and a few lines of damnation or praise already, all right? Have a great week. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast produced, voiced, and edited by myself in my apartment above a bar in Wicker Park, Chicago. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or catch it on SoundCloud, or download it from DonHallChicago.com. You can assist Peculiar Journeys financially, if you can, by becoming a VIP patron on www.patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys. Peculiar Journeys.